Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Here's a quote I want to share with you uh, from Jim Cimbala. I've been preparing this series. We're going to be jumping into the book of Nehemiah, and this quote, I read it, uh, I think it was just Thursday. And it really kind of set out, as I was studying this book, it really set out what I've been discovering and what God's been teaching me. And Jim Simmel is a pastor, I think he's in New York City. And he said, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. God is attracted to our weakness. Yeah, can I be honest? I love to avoid my weakness. I don't want to show up weak. I want to show up strong. But see, in the Christian life, if we're not willing to trust, if we're not willing to submit, if we're not willing to recognize that on our own, we can't then his power can't be perfected in us and he can't work through us and he can't bring about the change that he wants. And I wonder if sometimes we're just kind of hitting the brakes on God. You know, God's trying to move us. He's trying to shake us. He's already brought enough stuff in your life to make you feel weak. I don't know. Are you living a different life? I mean, so often there's events in life and things that happen and challenges that come and hopes and dreams and expectations and kids and marriages and all of that stuff comes into your life and then you realize on your own, you just, you can't do it in your own power. And we try to live the Christian life on our own strength and then we blame God that it's not working. And so as we jump to the book of Nehemiah, the reason we're gonna jump into this this story is because Nehemiah is taken to a place of desperation for God. Now, I know you probably know some of the story of Nehemiah. People know it as the guy that builds walls, but it's more than that. And honestly, the book of Nehemiah is really not about a wall at all. It's about God's people. And they were in a place of ruin. They were hoping in the promises of God. They kind of lost their way. And Nehemiah comes along and he's willing to hold on to the promises of God and trust that what God says is true. And then he's willing to risk and move out into the world in a way that God has to show up or Nehemiah's gonna look like a fool. You know, that's a safe place to be where we're trusting in God's promises. We're depending on his power and strength and we're moving forward to address something that only God can solve. So if you wanna grab a Bible, we're gonna jump into Nehemiah chapter one. We're gonna spend about 10 weeks, gonna take us almost up to the beginning of Advent. You know, I saw somebody post on social media this week. I did go on social media. I will apologize and seek forgiveness later, but it said 16 weeks, 16 Fridays until Christmas. That was a little frightening to me. So just encourage you, just encourage you. So let's jump into Nehemiah chapter one. We're gonna read the first first 11 verses. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. And Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. 
who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eye be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, Would you teach us and guide us in this time that we've set aside? It's not much time. But Father, if we are even faithful in the little things, you love to show up in greater ways. Awaken our faith to see you and in seeing you, to love you, to know you, and to be changed by you. Meet us here, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this series, what we're gonna be doing is moving from really the ruin of selfish ambition to the revival of holy ambition. All of us have ambition. Ambition's good. Ambition gets you up in the morning. Ambition recognizes your skills, your talents, your resources, and says, I don't want to waste my life. I don't think any child grows up and says, yes, I want to be mediocre. I want to be forgotten. I want my life to be wasted. Every single one of us want our lives to count. And often what we do is we take on kind of the program of the world, the resources of the world, the vision of the world, and say, okay, this is what success looks like. And then when God shows up and speaks, he turns the success of the world upside down. He says, the greatest of all must be the, you kidding me? The least? Jason, I want to teach you to be a servant. And though you may have power and you have resources and you have position, I want, you to make, I want to make you the servant of all. And I want to show my power through your life so that people would say, yes, God exists and Jesus Christ is real and his glory is worth pursuing. And in this series, we're going to try to move from this place of selfish ambition where life 
the vision of my life, you know, it doesn't really extend beyond my borders, to holy ambition, which is a vision for life that extends to loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And Nehemiah is going to help us, help us go there. And we're going to discover a couple of things as we just kind of follow Nehemiah's story. Realize this is his diary. You notice it's in first person. You're kind of picking up his diary. And it's a historic book, but he's sharing his experience as God put this burden on his heart. And he's saying, God, you really want me to do this? Are you kidding me? You're going to find times where Nehemiah is absolutely scared to death. Because realize, when God gives you a vision, often people think, okay, God's going to give me a vision. I'm just going to be happy about it. Yay, this is a vision from God. There's nobody in the Bible that responds that way. Have you noticed that? Most people, when God speaks, they're like, you want me to do what? With what? Are you kidding me? And see, for us as a church and as individuals, what vision is God putting on your heart that you can't do? That he has to show up to accomplish. First thing we discover is that Nehemiah asked the right questions. So let's jump back into the story. And look again at verse 1. It says, now what happened the month of Kislev, which is something like November, December. The 20th year means the 20th year of King Xerxes. He is the Persian king that Nehemiah is serving. As I was in Susa, so this is the capital, Hananiah, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah and asked them, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Now, one of the challenges, a lot of history here, so I'm tr- gonna try to unpack that. I don't know how far we're gonna get today, but there's a lot of history. See, Israel's in a mess. God said to them, I want, you to, I want you to be in a land flowing with milk and honey, and I want you to be a light to the nations. And whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. Man, through you, you're going to bring blessing to the world. That was the vision for Israel. But see, their vision, instead of being God-sized, it became kind of Israel-sized. And they started getting attracted to all the idols and the power and the politics and all the money and the wealth and the success of the world and all that stuff became more important. And then their vision in life started to change into kind of a selfish mode. I got to protect myself from the Assyrians and the Phoenicians and the Babylonians and all these great nations that have great powers. And I can't rely on God because God wants humility and that doesn't stop bullies. I need more than that. And God's constantly training Israel, right? Hey, I don't want you to go out with 5,000 men. Why don't you take like 10? And they're like, are you kidding me? And he's constantly raising up the wrong, like David. David's a runt. He's a weakling. God, what are you doing? And so Israel's in this place where they're holding on to a vision for life that keeps them secure, then trusting in God, which keeps them humble. And what happened was the nation, I don't know if you know this, Israel was divided in two. They kind of, they broke apart. There was a northern part, which was called Israel, and this is where it gets confusing. Israel was to the north, there were 10 tribes, and then Judah was to the south. And then what happened is in about 722 BC, the Assyrians came in. They wiped out Israel. We don't know where those guys are now. Those 10 tribes are kind of scattered out throughout the world. And then after the Assyrians, if you're following me, so we got Assyrians coming in, take out Israel. And then what happens, the Babylonians take out the Assyrians and the Babylonians then take out Judah. So Israel is scattered. Judah's been taken out. They're wiped out. And they're now in Babylon. So if you're following me, Assyrians, Babylonians, the next one is the Persians. 
Persians beat up the Babylonians. And now all of these Israelites, so Judah is now named Israel. I'm sure it's really confusing. And they're in exile. And in 2 Chronicles, at the end of 2 Chronicles, there's this King Cyrus, the Persian king. And God moves his heart. And the Holy Spirit puts on Cyrus's heart, hey, start sending people back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in Judea. And let them restore the temple. Let them begin to rebuild. And what happens is this guy, Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, you guys follow me? And then Nehemiah. So if you read Ezra, that's Nehemiah part one. Or Nehemiah's Ezra part two. I don't know which one it is. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're the same book. I don't know, they divided it up. And so God sends Zerubbabel, and then he sends Ezra with this remnant of people, and they start rebuilding Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the temple, but it starts to fail. And that's when Hananiah comes along. Do you, do you remember? Now we're, we're today. We've caught up. Hananiah comes along, and he's been with Ezra, I think, and he's coming to Nehemiah, and, he's, and Nehemiah's like, hey, what's going on back, back home? Now realize, Nehemiah's never lived in Israel, in Judah. His parents, his grandparents were taken off into exile. All he knows is Persian and Babylonian culture. He's 800 miles away. Why does he care? I mean, come on, let's be honest. He's, he's indoctrinated into the culture in which he lives. Why does he care about Israel and Jerusalem? And I suggest to you he cares because Nehemiah is a man that seeks after the heart of God. And when you seek after God's heart, some of God's heart gets in you. And, and let me say, it's only some, because you can't handle all of it. Because we need to care about the poor and the widow and the orphan, and we need to, to care about the immigrant, and we need to care about the homeless, and we, and we can't care about all of those things, can we? But God does place some things on our heart, and he says, I want you to care about these things. And that's Nehemiah. And Nehemiah hears what's happening, and his heart is broken and here's what he hears in, in verse three. He says the remnant there, now that's a, a group of people in the province who had survived the exile. So they had survived being taken off into captivity. And listen, they're in great trouble and shame. They're exposed, they're naked. The walls of Jerusalem are broken and its gates are destroyed by fire. I want you to notice this is not a book about walls, it's a book about people. Because he starts by saying, the people are in great trouble and shame has covered them. Man, if I was looking at that, I would say, what can I do about it? You kidding me? Great, not bad, not just a little trouble, great trouble. They're exposed, they're ashamed. See, walls back then, it wasn't to kind of make your property look better. If you didn't have walls, you didn't have an economy. If you didn't have walls, it was more important than an army to have walls. Their walls are down. There's no way for this nation to secure themselves. And, and Nehemiah's hearing this from 800 miles. It's 800 miles away. Why do I care? And what can I do about it? And it's already a great enough problem. And I'm only one guy. Does this sound familiar? You watch the news. You see a story. God starts to hit, put something in your heart. But I'm, I'm 800 miles away. I'm only one person. I can't possibly do it. There's great shame and brokenness. I can't solve it. That would have been really easy for Nehemiah to say. But see, holy ambition looks beyond yourself. It loves God and it loves others. And it's willing to trust. It's willing to trust. And here's what happens. 
Nehemiah starts asking the right question. And then notice in verse four, he begins to weep. As soon as I heard these words, I heard about the condition of the people. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Instead of reacting, that's our culture. Cable news disciples you to be a reactor. And that is the last thing your neighbors need, is more empty reaction. Nehemiah, he hears the story. He sees the trouble. And what does he do? He lets it hit him. He lets the brokenness of the world fall upon his shoulders and fall upon his heart. And he simply begins to lament and to weep. When is the last time you wept for the sin of the world? And maybe it's a specific brokenness. We had Joy International, remember two weeks ago, Joy International, Jeff was here, he walks barefoot. God broke his heart for those young women who are enslaved, given over to men, to use them for whatever purpose they desire. And his heart was broken and he sat and he wept. He didn't just react, he didn't get angry, he didn't blame, he didn't become self-righteous. He said, God, this is wrong. And he sat there. So often we see pictures of Jesus. And in those pictures, what does he look like? Just smiling, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes, real accurate depiction. Isaiah says, Jesus was a man of sorrows. He looks at Jerusalem. God's city, he's not like, yay, I'm finally there. He weeps over the brokenness, the broken marriages, the broken relationships, the sin, the heartache and the hurt. He sits there and he weeps. There is a whole section of scripture just called Lamentation in which God's people, they see the condition of the world and they allow it to affect them. When is the last time you have allowed the sin of the world to affect you? That's why God loves so much because he's grieved so much. And he's seen the brokenness and he's seen the hurt and he's seen the heartache and he's allowed it to affect you. When you allow yourself to weep like that, you don't come out with bitterness and anger and hatred. You come out and say, God, you gotta do something. That's where Nehemiah is. He is in a place of weeping and prayer and fasting because God is starting to do something in him and he's not gonna move out right into action. Instead, he's gonna sit there in the presence of God and allow God to speak to him. Church, that's something in the evangelical church we do not do well. We need to learn to weep and lament and allow the brokenness of the world to settle into our hearts. Because it's only when we allow God to move in us that he can give us a vision for what we can do. But you know what we often do when you see that story? I don't know if we click now. Do we still click? Are we clicking? That was me changing the channel, if you didn't know. I don't know if that's dated. We, I don't know, we do something like this. A, ba a story comes and what do we do? We, we go to a new one. Oh, that's really sad. Oh, look at this. Pandas at the zoo, this is wonderful. You live in a culture that is numbing you. Instead of listening to the voice of God, Nehemiah is willing to sit there. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, it is, it is doubtful whether God can bless or use a man greatly. 
until he has hurt him deeply. Holy ambition asks, it weeps, and then second, it prays. Watch this in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, I mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You know, if you look back in verse three, did you notice the way this situation was described? Great trouble. Beth brought up that slide on intentional versus unintentional growth. Unintentional growth just kind of listens to the stories of life and you don't realize what's influencing you. Intentional growth is taking the truth of who God is and allowing it to rewrite what you see. Nehemiah sees great trouble, but in prayer, he sees a greater God and his heart starts to shift. Have you ever felt that? God, I can't do this. I can't handle this. This is too great. I can't solve it. I can't overcome it. I don't know what to do about it. The problems are great. The shame is great. And then in prayer, in weeping and lamentation, you start praying saying, God, show me your greatness. Show me your steadfast love, your covenantal kindness. And you start to realize that the challenges out there aren't greater than the God who has created you and is giving you a vision for what to do. Nehemiah's stories, he's starting to see through the lens of truth. And then in verse 10, if you jump down to verse 10, it's not only great trouble and a great God, but he says, you know what? You have great power. You can do this. And then in verse, the end of verse 10, he's like, and use me. You know that process? Four months. Four months. We read this in one chapter. For four months, he lamented. For four months, he wept. For four months, he prayed. For four months, he looked at the great trouble. He looked at his great God. He looked at the great power. And then he finally said, God, I am your, do you notice the language? I'm your servant. Eight times in chapter one. I know who I am, which means all my stuff is yours. You gave me the intelligence. You gave me the relationships. You gave me the impact. You gave me the power. You gave me the authority. God, it's all yours. Do you want to use me? Church, are we willing to seek God in that way that forces us to trust him? He prays. He weeps. He asks the right questions. And then what he begins to do is he builds up his faith. Let's jump down to verse 8. Because in verse 8, he says, remember the word. Now he's saying, God, remember your word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you were unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen. Notice to make my name dwell there, to make my name great. And then in verse 10, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. All of that language, he's remembering what God's done. It's Exodus language. He's in exile, in slavery. He has to pull back to a gospel. Gospel means good news. A good news of God's deliverance. And he looks back at what God did through the Exodus, through his mighty hand and great power, how he rescued a community of people 
who were enslaved, which means they couldn't overcome the powers that were over them. And God rescued them out because, see, Israel's a mess. They have disobeyed God, God's presence in a sense. It looks like his promises, his promises are empty because God's not coming through because Israel's disobedient. And you know what Nehemiah does? Instead of starting blaming everybody and blaming everybody in the church and the community, he looks within. And he says, God, if I'm going to be used by you, I got to change. And he starts to confess his own sin. And you know what he also does? He confessed the sin of his nation. Now, I want you to understand, he probably didn't do a lot of the things the nation did. But that's my people. Christians, sometimes we need to repent for what the church has done in the past. Sometimes we need to repent for what the church has done in the past because we are a representation of that people. And sometimes the sin of the present and the problem of the present don't hit us because, see, we won't own the sins of the past. The Old Testament, they had no problem with that. Yeah, I wasn't a part of that racist period of history. Okay, okay. Nehemiah's like, doesn't matter. That was four generations ago. Nehemiah says, that's my people, that's my sin. I want to feel it, I want to sit in it, I want to repent. Church, do we own the sins of the past? Or do we just kind of move on and think that we can solve the issues of today, but we don't, we're not willing to let God sit in that sin and allow it to wash over us, to weep in it, and then to trust that God can do something. We're not willing to sit in it long enough to see the solutions are greater than what we can bring. Nehemiah weeps, he laments, he confesses. And then finally in verse 11, he acts. And I want you to notice this last, the last two words of verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servant who delight to fear your name and give success. He's saying, Father, help me, help me. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of, now, this man. It's not the last two words. I got it wrong. Forgive me. Who's this man? And you notice it says man. He's talking about the king. The most powerful man on earth. And he's the cupbearer. You know, Nehemiah could have looked at these problems and gone, you know what? I know the king. He can solve this. See, when you have resources around you, you often do not lament, you do not weep, you do not trust, because the first thing you grab is what you got. And let me say to you, what you got in your hands, it's never enough for God. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your surrender. And realize, Nehemiah is saying, the king because he's going to have to go ask the king next week. We're going to find out. He's going to be scared to death. There's a process. When you're trusting God, you go from fear to trust, to fear to trust, to fear to trust, to fear to trust. He's going he's to fall apart next week. But what he's saying, this man, God, you're greater. Your power is greater. This king, he's just a man. You got it. His faith is beginning to grow. As we walk through this series, the question I want to ask is, what burdens has God put on your heart? And maybe some of you, you've shut them out, right? 
I was just young in the faith. Oh, that moment wasn't real. God put a vision, a a passion for ministry, a passion to do something in the kingdom of God, and then sin came in, right? And shame, great shame, great trouble. And what do you think? God's done with me. Come on, I'm preaching to somebody. God's done with me. Can't clean this up. And we look at our hands, I don't have the resources, I don't have the power, I can't be used by God. Are you kidding me? Israel was dry bones. And yet the Spirit of God brought life back. Nehemiah was 800 miles away, no reason to care about these people. And yet God, through the Holy Spirit, put a burden on his heart and then brought him to a place of humility. And in that place of humility, he cultivated a vision. And in that vision, he saw God. And he realized, God, you're great enough. Your power is good enough. And then some people got around him and they did something together that no one could imagine. That's the church. At least it should be. Church, do we want to have a vision that's so great that only God could carry it out? And not just in our church, but in our lives. And maybe for some of you, let's get real simple. It could be a relationship. You just don't think it's gonna change. And this week, instead of going into self-righteousness and blame, would you just sit in it and lament? Would you bring your heartbreak to God? Would you cry out to him? Would you allow the promises of God to remind you of his goodness and his greatness? And in that place of intimacy, would you allow him to love you again? And then maybe allow you to see a different vision Because your eyes aren't on the stories, your eyes on the truth. And when your eyes on the truth, the Spirit of God can move and give you the power to obey and to see life differently. Church, are you ready to walk as we go through this book in a place where we have to trust Him and to be dependent on Him? And to say, God, unless you move, unless you show up, it can't be accomplished. That's that's the kind of faith God wants to take us into. Let me close again with that quote that I read in the beginning. Jim Simbola, he said, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you who are right now hungering and thirsting for something more. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed when God takes us to the end of ourselves and we say, God, I need you. We're gonna celebrate communion this morning and if you didn't grab the elements when you came in, it's okay. Because I didn't either. And so the elements are available in the back. They're also available up front. I don't know what God has stirred in your heart through the song, the music, the prayer this morning, through this message. But as we grab the elements, it's an opportunity to to reflect. To speak back to God what he has spoken to you. To confirm with God what he has confirmed with you. And for some of us, that could just be to repent, to turn. Repentance is not a negative term. It's to see. It's to open your eyes. It's to understand the truth. Here's where I am, God. And see, until we can admit where we are, we can't 
We can't move to where God wants us to be. And repentance is just, God, this is where I am. And he gives grace to the humble. The humble are the broken and the sinful, the weak, the meek, those that they know they need God. God gives grace to you when you know you need him. But when you say, I got this, he ignores the proud. In this time of reflection, let's bring our brokenness, our needs to him. Let's allow him to stir in us a holy ambition that only he can fill. Let's pray. Father, you, you can open the eyes of the blind. You can awaken dead bones. You can bring life where there is death. You bring forgiveness where there is bitterness. Father, you bring restoration. You bring healing. You bring redemption. We just bring humility. We bring our sin, we bring our need. And you love in our neediness to lavish grace upon grace upon grace to your children. Because on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, take and eat for this is my body, which which is broken for you. Receive it together. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it represents the new covenant, the relationship that is now established in my blood, let us receive it together. If you know you have a need this morning and you need to be prayed for, I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward. Prayer team, would you take your place up front and, and listen after the service as we're leaving, if you wanna chat and you wanna go out into the lobby, go out into the lobby so that there is space for those that need to be prayed for. And if you wanna linger in the sanctuary, you can just linger here as the worship team leads and just allow the spirit of God to minister to us. Let's stand as we respond in worship.